You guys doing all right? Thanks for coming out on a Wednesday for, uh, for leadership night. I thought I'd start with a couple of jokes. You guys ready? <laughs> I, um... <laughs> hey, well, funnily enough, talking... was that the... You guys, why do I even bother? A green curry and a red curry were having a race. Who do you think won? It was a tie. Yep, yep. It's, you guys can take notes on that one. That was a good one. You are? Okay. Uh, a duck was standing at the corner waiting to cross the road and a chicken comes up to him and says, mate, you don't want to do that. You'll never hear the end of it. That's a joke, yep. All right. Uh, okay, last one. Man, man, man applies for a job. Handyman required. Apply within. The interviewer says, can you mix concrete? No. Can you carry a heavy vehicle license? No. Can you drive a forklift truck? No. Can you dig holes? No. And so it goes on and on and on. The answer is always no. Eventually the interviewer says, well, what makes you think you're a handyman? He says, I only live around the corner. There you go, Julie. See? All right. <clears throat> Leadership. 103, learn how to tell good jokes. It's important. All right, so who was here last one? Or who wasn't here last one? Probably who missed out on the last one? All right, Nathan, Deb, Brent, Bev. All right, cool. So this is just for you, like real quickly, uh, in case you missed it. Who remembers what we talked about last? Leadership 102, what was the big topic? Failure. Very good. Well done. So just real quickly, what we did is we ran through uh, this idea that failure is actually something that we all need to have in our lives, that failure is the key ingredient of success. We talked about uh, the fact that an impala, which is like this cool deer, uh, can leap up to 10 feet in the air and can leap a distance of 33 feet. It can literally limp over this whole stage. But you can keep an impala in an enclosed paddock with a concrete fence that's only three feet high. And the reason for that is because an impala will never leap anywhere unless it can see where its feet are going to land. And we operate our lives like that a lot. Uh, and so what we need to recognize is that failure is not the opposite of success. It is absolutely the key ingredient of it. And we talked about the three rules for failure. We talked about failing fast. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Don't drag out the whole process, which ironically we do. If we're scared of failing, we end up dragging out the whole failure process because we don't want to admit that that just didn't work. Um, uh, another thing that we do is you need to fail frequently. The more often you fail, the less scary failure gets. So you want to get that into your life as much as you can. And then the last thing you want to do is you want to fail forward. So when you're failing, at least make sure you're failing in the direction that you want to go. So you know, if you want to be someone that excels in this area over here, then try and fail towards you know, that area. Um, has anyone failed in the last month at anything? Yes? Miriam, what have you failed at? Oh, I feel that. Making your simulation run. Yeah, who else has failed? A lad? You put your hand, what did you fail on? Making an omelette. Well, isn't there some saying around failure? You can't make an omelette without breaking eggs or something? There's, yeah, there you go. Denise, you failed? Oh, yeah. I failed those on purpose so I could share with you tonight that I have also failed 
uh, in fitness goals, all right? Uh, the other thing we talked about was that when you fail, you're not a failure. This is super important to make sure that you separate your personal identity out from what you do. It's often referred to as like the imposter syndrome, but, you know, I mean, I've posted recently just on Facebook about how important it is to, to not get your identity wrapped up in what you do, right? So make sure that when you fail, you don't take any of that on board. You're not personalizing it. And then the last one was that failure is almost never fatal. And we talked about how important perspective is, right? That perspective is everything. So um, let's move on to, to Leadership 103. Who can remember the game that we played last month where I put words up on the screen and you had to yell out the opposites of them? You remember that one, Amanda? Yeah. So tonight we're going to do something similar where I'm going to put a word up on the screen and you yell out if it's good or bad. All right, so, so let's, let's just practice. Good, all right, let's, let's go. Just first thing that pops into your head. All right, good, bad, good, bad, good. Oh, yes, see, here we go. All right. I know, some of you guys, you were, wait, you were waiting for it, right? So what we're going to talk about tonight and the next sort of 40 minutes or so is we're going to talk about conflict. Who loves conflict? This is just, yeah, Dan's leaving, yep. So in the last session, we talked about how we needed to completely reframe our definition of failure, right? That failure is not the opposite of success. It's actually a critical part of it, that failure is good. You want to have a lot of failure regularly happening in your life because that's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we become better leaders. Uh, Conflict is a similar kind of concept. It's not bad. It's good, right? And so we need to rewire our brain. I mean, how many people would say that they tend to avoid conflict, Like, yeah, like most people tend to avoid conflict because most people would view conflict as a bad thing. In fact, if you type conflict into Google, you just get pictures like this that pop up. That's not a fun picture. 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 That's not a fun picture, right? So we all kind of carry this idea that conflict is something to be avoided. It's something uh, that is negative. But actually, conflict in any context, so even if we're talking about your marital relationship, your friend relationships, your business relationships, if you want to become a leader, unfortunately, the non-negotiable when it comes to leadership is you have to deal with people. Right, John Maxwell says, if you're a leader and no one's following you, you're just a loser going for a walk, which is, which is true, right? Well, it's a bit harsh, right? But if, if you can't call yourself a leader if people aren't following you, if you're not surrounding yourself with people, otherwise, who are you leading? So if you're dealing with people, you have to learn how to handle conflict. And one of the first things you've got to do is recognize that conflict's healthy, as long as it's the right kind of conflict, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, that conflict is good and you need to have conflict uh, in your life. I love this statement, that, that leadership is living in the 10%. And, and I was talking with Sheridan actually about this uh, on Friday last week, and he made this comment. You know, leadership is living in the 10%. Uh, all of us have our lives And all of us have an area of our life that we kind of put into the too hard basket. We've got 10% of our relationships are difficult relationships. 10% of the conversations that we want to have are difficult conversations. You know, it's just, it's hard to do those kind of things. And so what most people do is they just avoid that 10% of their life. I don't want to have those conversations. I don't want to deal with those people. I don't want to sort out that part of my life. We avoid those things. Well, leadership, you just, you're living in that 10%. 
That's what leadership is. Leadership is constantly having the conversations that everybody else is just wanting to avoid. It's constantly dealing with the people that everybody else doesn't want to deal with. Leadership is living uh, in the 10%. And, and I mean, those of you that were, were here, who was here when I started pastoring in this church? Okay, so yeah, half, that's so. You guys will remember, right? Like, I mean, maybe some of you won't remember because a lot of it was out in uh, those rooms out there rather than in here on a Sunday morning. But there was a lot of difficult conversations that had to be had. And you just, you cannot get away from conflict. And there is good conflict and there's bad conflict. And we'll talk about both of those in a minute. Patrick Lencioni is kind of like one of the geniuses in this area around team dynamics and conflict and stuff. And he says this, this is a challenging thought, right? Contrary to popular wisdom and behavior, conflict is not a bad thing. In fact, the fear of conflict is almost always a sign of problems. Just let that, that rest for a little bit. Contrary to popular wisdom, conflict is not a bad thing. And so what we have to do is we have to learn to embrace conflict. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight, embracing conflict, which sounds counterintuitive, it sounds crazy, but the truth is that all great relationships, the ones that last over time, require productive conflict in order to grow. And I want to highlight that word, right, productive conflict. Like Josh and Ioane, I mean, you guys are engaged you're going to be getting married on January 22nd. Is that right? Yeah. Josh and Ioana are getting married in the same church that Liz and I got married in. How sweet is that? Oh, I know, right? Do you guys have conflict? Yes. That's the right answer. Who's married in this place? Right? How many of you would be concerned if they said they were engaged and they never argue? No conflict in their relationship. Well, right? Concern. Like that's, that's a concern. Because one of the things that we learn about conflict, and this is maybe a topic for another night, but conflict is one of the symptoms of trust. Where you have healthy, productive conflict, you have healthy trust. So when Liz and I first got married, and I've shared some of this with our our staff team when I first started in the church, but when Liz and I got married, we had very little conflict. Like, she was just... She just loved everything I said, and she loved everything I did, and she loved all the food that I loved, and she loved to do what I loved to do, and she loved the movies that I loved, and I was like, this is amazing. It's like I've married the feminine version of myself. She's like, great. And then after we were married for like two years, all of a sudden, this beautiful woman that I was married to started getting opinions that weren't in line with my opinions. She started having attitudes, which I didn't understand. She started using this word a lot, which I hated. It was... No, I didn't like that. I wasn't used to hearing that. And anyway, what had happened was like her parents got divorced when she was about four or five years old. Uh, And so she had been carrying, unbeknownst to either of us, she'd been carrying this insecurity that maybe if she got a little bit too honest about how she was feeling or if she pushed back on things or if she said, hey, look, I don't actually want that, that maybe I I would leave her like she saw her parents split up. But after a couple of years... That trust had been built to a point where she had absolute confidence that she could say, I don't want to do that, and I wasn't going to go anywhere. And so all of a sudden, it looked like our relationship was going through this really difficult period where there was this conflict all the time, but actually that conflict was a symptom of trust that had grown into the relationship. Does that make sense? Where you don't have conflict, you have trust issues. 
where you don't have conflict, almost always one of the people in the relationship or on the team has an opinion that they're just not sharing. How many times have you had an opinion about something and you've just chosen not to say anything because you couldn't be bothered dealing with the conflict, right? We've all, uh, Amanda, I bet you do it all the time. Yep, one of the things that I love about Amanda is she's just known for just not saying what she thinks and keeping it quiet, all right? So what we're going to talk about, so we're going to talk about very quickly, like um, productive conflict, right? So there are two main types of conflict, and I want to make sure that we're really clear on this. There is what we call personal conflict, and there's what we call ideological conflict. Now, one of them is in red because they're bad. And one of it's in green because it's good. Personal conflict is not healthy. I'm talking in a leadership team environment. Now, sometimes you're going to have personal conflict relationally, and that's, that's a separate thing. But I'm talking about as a leader, we're here doing leadership training. If you're in a group, if you're running a small group, if you're you know, running a family, if you're in any environment where there's like multiple people involved, personal conflict is one thing. I'm talking about ideological conflict. Uh, in the context of leadership, in the context of teams. So personal conflict, not productive. Ideological conflict is productive. The problem is there's quite a lot of overlap between these two conflicts, and so you need to learn to recognize the difference. So unproductive personal conflict is it's personality-focused. I don't like you. It's, I love you. I don't love you. And like, you know what I mean? Like, okay. I love you as a sister, sister in Christ. Right? Um, <laughs> Okay, so, but it's personality focused. You smell, like what Denise said to me last Sunday, very unhelpful, very hurtful, <laughs> right? Yeah, it did help everybody else, yeah. She said, dude, dude, can everyone hear Denise saying that? Dude, you need to put on some deodorant. And uh, I was like, well, so I did. I went and put it on, and then later on, the, it was great, because later in the day, Liz said to me, oh, you smell nice. So thank you for that, right? So it's, but it's, you guys understand what personality-focused conflict, like you're going after who they are as a person, right? Uh, it's mean-spirited a lot of the time. It's coming out of frustration and all those kind of issues that we're carrying. It's emotional. It's uh, based around frustration, and there's often a lot of passion involved. Now, here's where it gets tricky, because productive ideological conflict uh, is limited to concepts and ideas. So in a group context, you're having conflict around somebody's idea or somebody's thoughts. You're not attacking them as a person, but you're saying, hey, look, I really don't think that's a good idea, or I've got an issue with that, prob- you know, that suggestion. That's actually healthy conflict. And in a team environment, you want everybody that you're working with, if you're leading a small group again, or if you're in a family, like even in a family context, we try and involve our kids as much as we can. Like, what do you guys think about this? Um, when we decided to leave our last church, we didn't know we were going to end up pastoring here. Um, but we sat the kids down at the table and we said, hey, we think God might be saying it's time for us to leave. What, what do you guys think? Like, we're trying to, you know, draw people out. And um, the kids are like, we don't know if that's a good idea. And I was like, well, you guys go away and think about it. And, you know, we're looking for all the different opinions. And how many people know that if you've got four or five people in a room, you've got four or five different opinions? Six or seven different opinions, exactly, yeah, right? If you're Jewish, yeah, yeah. Or if you've got, no, it's all right, I was going to say something else. Right, so it's limited to concepts and ideas. It avoids personal attacks. But look at these bottom three. See, productive conflict is very often emotional. It's very often, uh, there's a lot of frustration in there, and there's a lot of passion as well. So what happens is that we get scared by these three things. So you're having a meeting with people, and you're trying to get, you know, 
consensus on an issue and people are getting fired up and they're getting passionate and they're getting emotional and we go, whoa, this is too scary. Actually, these things are, are really, really healthy. And so the goal is with conflict is you want to make sure that you are encouraging ideological stuff but you're not going personal. So here's just some of the things that you look for in a healthy team environment. So teams that engage in conflict have lively, interesting meetings, whereas teams that are scared of conflict have boring meetings. Teams that engage in conflict extract and exploit the ideas of all the team members, uh, but teams that fear conflict will often not tap into all the opinions and perspectives of team members. And so one of the things I try to do, don't always succeed, but one of the things I'll try to do in any group context is make sure that everybody's had a chance to say what they think. And you'll often have people in your team that don't volunteer that. I mean, you've always got at least two or three people that you can't shut up and you can't get them to stop. So sometimes you have to say, hey, appreciate that, Josh. We've actually heard two or three thoughts from you. So they're all good. Just, just, just dip for a little bit. Because I really want to hear from Amanda, who yet again is not saying anything. So... <laughs> You know, Amanda, what do you, what do you think about this, right? So I'll just I always try and make sure that in any time we have a meeting, right? Uh, yeah, any time we have a meeting, that I give everyone a chance to to say something. Uh, all right. Uh, you want to put critical topics on the table for discussion. So teams that engage in conflict are happy to put topics of conversation on there that could get a little bit robust and a little bit messy, whereas teams that are scared of conflict will avoid talking about the big issues. Uh, teams that engage in conflicts will minimise politics, but this is a really big one. Teams that fear conflict will create environments where back-channel politics and personal attacks thrive. In teams that um, avoid conflict, you have what's called the meeting after the meeting. right? So you have the meeting... And then on the way home, you might, and I've, I've done this, like, and I've had this done to me, where you'll call someone else that was in the meeting, you'll be like, dude, what did you think about that? Oh, man, I can't believe they agreed to do that. I can't believe they agreed to do it either. I've had this conversation with a guy once, and I was like, are you going to say something? He said, man, I said something last time. Like, you said, I'm, like, I'm not going to say something. I said, tell you what, if you open up a group chat on Facebook and say, hey, I think it's a bad idea, then I promise that then I'll jump on and say, I too think that's a bad idea. But it was, you know, these meetings after meetings. Uh, and teams that engage in conflict, they solve problems quickly, whereas teams that fear conflict waste time and energy with posturing and what we call interpersonal risk management. So one of the things, and again, I'm learning in it and I'm trying to grow in it and I don't do it awesome all the time, but one of the things that I try and create in, in the team environments that I work in is this idea that you can say whatever you think you don't have to stress about how you come across. I try, I try to do that as much as I can. So, Because uh, I've been in environments where you spend so long trying to work out how to package what you're saying so that it's not going to hurt somebody's feelings. It's just, you just waste a lot of emotional time. And so I'm a big fan of going, look, if you're in a leadership environment where we should all be mature leaders, you should be able to just say, dude, I think that's dumb. And I should be able to handle that. Right, and and I have had people say things to me many times where I'm like, oh, that's just you know, say what you really think, Amanda. Um, <laughs> uh, so, does that all make sense so far? Cool, man. We're just banging through it tonight. So, a um, couple of thoughts that you want to, if you want to embrace productive conflict. First thing you've got to do is recognize that conflict is good, right? You want to acknowledge these three things here if you want to write them down. Number one, acknowledge that conflict is productive. It's not bad. It's not something to be avoided. It is a healthy sign of a healthy team as long as that conflict is centered around the ideological conversation, not personal stuff. 
right? So if I'm in a meeting and someone says something personal, you're going to shut that down right away and say, look, that's not appropriate. That's not how we do things here. But if they're, if they're attacking an idea, it's actually okay. And if the idea is strong enough to handle it, then it'll handle it. And if it's not, then it's probably a good thing to have a go at it. So many teams have a tendency to avoid conflict. And unless people believe that it's necessary, they won't participate. And this probably isn't something that I've done that well recently, but it's just reminding people that I'm on team with that actually conflict is productive. It's helpful. We've got to get, you know, I've, I, I invite people on, like Dan, Amanda, Abel, and Kira, these guys that are on our core team. I want them there because I like the way they think. And they think differently to me. They think from different angles, different perspectives. There's no point being on a team if you don't offer what you think and what you see. Uh, I caught up with Dan uh, just on Monday. We had lunch and we were talking about a meeting that I had uh, kind of run uh, the day before. And Dan was like, ah, you know, I, I noticed this about the way that you ran. It probably wasn't that great. I was like, yeah, you're right. It's, it's not that great. Uh, and I like the fact that Dan and I have a relationship where he can say, I think you could have done that differently. You could have done that better. And he was right. And I could have. And I'll try and do it better next time. And that's fine. Right, like that's what healthy team looks like. Um, second thing you want to do is you want to go mining, and this is specifically for people that are leading groups, that are leading teams. So mining is when you you basically do what the picture says. You're, you're digging for conflict, so you know that conflict is under the surface, and you've got the courage and the confidence to call out the issues and force team members to work through them. So often, because I'm in a relationship with all the different people in my team, I'll, I'll end up having a conversation with Abel about something, and I'll find out that he thinks this about a topic. And then, just in relationship, I'll be hanging out with Jared, and I'll find out that Jared thinks this about that topic. They're two different opinions, right? And so then we get into a meeting, and Jared might have quite a, he's got a strong personality, and so he might say, well, I think this, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I know that Abel does not agree with that because we've had conversations, right? So mining is when I go, that's interesting, Jared. Abel, what were you telling me the other day about, about that, about how you, you think that's the dumbest idea you've ever heard of in your life? Tell us more about that, right? And so you're actually bringing that conflict out because um, you need that conflict in, in a healthy team. Uh, and so miners uh, normally are the people facilitating the meeting. You've got to stay objective, you know, so you can't be like, I actually, you know, hey, well, tell me about that thing that you think about, Jared. You're right, and he's wrong, but tell everybody. Like, you've got to just sort of stay objective, and you kind of almost become uh, a bit of a facilitator of everybody else doing the meeting while you just sort of watch on, right? And then uh, you know, once the conflict is resolved, you want to make sure that you remind the team that conflict is good, and it's not something to avoid. And again, it's probably not. I mean, my guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've been overly articulate about that recently. Uh, and then uh, the third thing you want to do is you want to... Oh, is there a third thing? Maybe there's only two things. Yeah, go mining. Oh, no, there is one more thing. Anyway, so the key with this is you show restraint when your people are engaging in conflict and you allow resolution to occur naturally, even though it can sometimes be really messy. See, the, the temptation is, particularly if you're a leader that struggles with conflict... The temptation is that you will jump in and shut it down too early because it's just making you uncomfortable. And so I remember serving on a team once and um, I got told, hey, Josh, you know, like you have a lot of opinions and you've got quite a, you know, loud voice in the room. And sometimes uh, 
maybe other people aren't saying what they think because you're so adamant that you're right. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to be that person, right? And so I said to one of the pastors, I said, hey, if, if, if you ever are in a meeting with me and you feel that I'm too excited or I'm, I'm shutting other people down because of my views, like, I would really appreciate it if you would just tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you're doing it again. Like, just because I don't want to be that person, just let me know. And she said to me, oh, Josh, I don't feel comfortable doing that because I don't do conflict, right? And so (laughs) that kind of personality is going to really struggle to lead a team and allow people to have emotional, passionate difference of opinions because it just makes them so uncomfortable. And so they'll just shut it down. And what happens when you shut conflict down above the surface is that you just drive it underground, Conflict doesn't disappear, it just goes underground and you end up having it in really unhealthy ways um, and through unhealthy you know, back channels. And then the third thing you want to do if you want to embrace productive conflict is you want to lead by example. Uh, and again, no one's perfect, like I've, I try to do it but I don't get it right all the time. You want to personally model appropriate conflict behaviour. Uh, because if we avoid conflict when we know we need to engage in conflict, then all we're going to do is just model that behavior to the people around us and they'll do the same thing. So it's super important that your team can see that when you have an opportunity to engage in conflict, that you don't run away from it, that you actually you know, move forward. Is that cool? Sweet. So sort of 15 minutes to go. What we're going to do now is just pivot slightly. And some of you that were in church about a year and a half ago will remember that I did a leadership training session on, on how to receive feedback. Um, maybe you don't just nod, be like, yes, of course, I can recite the whole thing from a year and a half ago. But I thought, I thought this would be, given that we're talking about conflict uh, and how healthy conflict is, it, this would dovetail quite nicely into this topic of how to receive feedback well. And uh, this is actually uh, really, really helpful stuff, and you can apply this particularly in a marriage context, but in any kind of interpersonal context, how to receive feedback well is, is super important. Because the bottom line is that in life, you're always receiving feedback, right, from people all around you. Like your kids will give you feedback. Look at this photo from me. That's Jess. Oh, look how dark my hair is. There's no gray hairs on that thing. Man. Um, so she's like just turned one, so like 10 years ago. Like how many people know that your kids, your kids are giving you feedback all the time, right? Um, when, when you give someone a Christmas present or a birthday present, their face gives you feedback sometimes. You know, your pants give you feedback sometimes. Like things, there's always things in life that are giving you feedback. And, and sometimes, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of people... Uh, and in any feedback situation, there is always what we call um, a receiver and, and a giver, or a giver and a receiver. So in any feedback context, someone is giving feedback and somebody is receiving feedback. Now, in this picture, the guy looks quite happy to be receiving the feedback, but sometimes receiving feedback is not, is not so enjoyable, right? Um, feedback and the ability to receive feedback well has been linked to higher job satisfaction, greater creativity, faster adaptation to a new role, lower staff turnover, and higher performance ratings. There's a lot of positive stuff that comes with learning how to receive feedback well. And again, even in a marriage context, John Gottman, who runs the Gottman Institute, says that a person's willingness and ability to accept influence and input from their spouse is a key predictor 
uh, of a healthy, stable marriage. And so there's a book that was written called Thanks for the Feedback, which is what um, this stuff is based on. And it's written by two kind of uh, very, very smart people called Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. And so Douglas and Sheila were uh, working all the time with corporations and middle management and uh, upper management and CEOs, and they were dealing with people uh, and teaching them how to give feedback. And if you've ever been involved in any kind of corporate stuff, you've probably had some sort of training around how to give feedback. They bring you in, they're like, hey, hey, this is how you give feedback. You have like, who's sort of the positive, negative, positive sandwich? So basically, if you want to give someone negative feedback, you've got to squish it in between two positive things. You know, so it's like, Nathan, man, I love your hat. Your nose is weird. Your teeth are awesome. Like, like you kind of, your nose is great. I shouldn't be saying that, but... I should have used my, my, you know, me as an example. But, you know, so they're training all these people on how to give feedback. And then they kind of, they kind of went, you know what's weird? Like, how often are you given feedback by someone who's been trained in how to give feedback well? It doesn't happen very often. Like, it might happen in a business context, but everybody else in your world has not had training on how to give feedback well. And so you're probably just getting it through their messed up filters. And so they said, you know what we should be doing? We should be training people how to receive feedback well. Because if I train Debbie how to receive feedback well, then it doesn't matter who gives it to her, whether it's her boss or her mum or her friend or a dog or her genes or whatever it might be, she's got the tools that she needs to receive that feedback. And actually, that's biblical. If you look at the way the Bible works, there's far more uh, training and advice on how to receive a prophetic word than there is on how to give a prophetic word. Because if you teach someone how to receive a prophetic word, it doesn't matter what they get given, they can run it through the appropriate filters and flush what they need to flush. Uh, And so um, what we're going to look at really quickly is just some good thoughts on how to receive feedback well. The reason that feedback is so difficult for so many of us to take on board is because feedback lies in this tension point between two markers, uh, between learning and between being accepted. And so what I mean by that is that all of us carry this tension where we want to learn. Like we want, All of us want to become better people. We want to improve as people, we want to grow, we want to mature, and so we all intrinsically recognize that in order for me to grow and become a better person, I have to be able to take feedback on board. We all know that. But on the flip side of the coin, all of us want to be accepted right now for who we are, you know, no strings attached. I don't like the idea that someone is not accepting me now but will accept me at some point in the future, and so feedback is awkward because we crave it and we hate it. Like, we want it to grow, but we hate the thought that someone's saying, hey, you're not good enough right now. Like, can't you just accept me with all of my flaws and all of my issues, right? So right in between these two things. And so what these guys discovered uh, was that there's three what they call feedback triggers. And so we're just going to run through those, and then we're going to have dessert, and, uh, you know, we're done. We've only got 10 minutes to go. So these three feedback, feedback triggers are, right, they are what we call truth triggers. Man, that's tiny font. We've got relationship triggers, and we have identity triggers. Uh, and this is great. I found this super helpful in, in, in my marriage, even though we're not talking about marriage tonight, but in, in, in any relationship. So what they say is anytime somebody gives you feedback, it's going to hit one of these three triggers. And I'm going to tell you how you can recognize what the trigger is that the feedback's hit, and then I'm going to tell you how you can better process through the feedback so that it's not triggering you the same way. So the first kind of feedback that you get is what we call, it hits a truth trigger. 
So a truth trigger means that when you get it, you, uh, you have a reaction to the substance of the feedback. It's what Jason told me that I'm reacting to. It's off or it's unhelpful or it's straight up not even true. You know, so Jason might say, hey, I don't really appreciate the fact that you, you know, banged my car out in the car park and then didn't even tell me about it. And I'm like, whoa, dude, I, I didn't do that. Like, so I, I have an issue with the feedback, right? So when a truth trigger is hit, you will often feel indignant, um, you will feel frustrated, you'll feel wronged, or you'll feel exasperated, right? So if somebody gives you feedback and your response is no, what? Like, come on, man. Like, you're kind of having a, a frustration, then you can almost always guarantee that you're having a reaction, you have, your truth trigger has been, has been hit in the feedback. And so in a minute, we'll look at how to deal with that. Uh, another trigger is what we call a relationship trigger. And a relationship trigger is different to the truth trigger because whereas a truth trigger will be uh, set off by the content of the feedback, a relationship trigger is tripped by the person who's giving you the feedback. So you don't even really take a moment to process what they've said because you're so kind of PO'd about who's giving you that feedback. So it's like, um, you know, if someone came to me, I won't mention who I'm thinking of, but if someone came to me and said, hey, you showed up late to the meeting today. And I'm like, what? Well, you are always late to the meeting, right? Like, and so I'm not even processing the fact that that feedback is accurate or that I was late to the meeting. I've automatically just kind of got miffed that you've got the nerve to tell me, whoever that person may be in this room. Um, I'm picking on you because soon you can have a baby and then it's not going to be cool to do it. You know? <laughs> Um, so when, when a relationship trigger is triggered, uh, what we do is we shift the focus from the feedback to the audacity of the person delivering it. Who are you to say that to me? Like, I can't believe, and often, because we don't like conflict, we don't say anything to the person, and then later on we say to our husband or our wife or our friend, oh my gosh, guess what Alaya said to me? She said, blah, blah, can you believe that Alaya said that to me? I know, here, right? Right? She said, I laugh too much in messages. Alaya said that. She's laughing all the time. Right? Um, and then the third type of trigger that gets hit is what we call an identity trigger. And this is, this is a painful one, man. So this, an identity trigger is when the feedback comes and it doesn't, we don't have an issue with the feedback. We don't have an issue with the person that gave it to us. But, oh, man, it hurts our feelings. It makes us feel pretty stink about ourselves, right? It, and what it does, an identity trigger, when that gets hit, it causes a, a sense of who we are to come undone. And the way you can tell that an identity trigger's been hit is that you're not arguing with the person about the context of their feedback. You're not saying, hey, that's not accurate feedback. You're not stressed out about who the person is that gave it to you, and you're not feeling kind of annoyed that they'd have the nerve to do it. But you're feeling uh, overwhelmed. You feel threatened. You feel ashamed. You feel off balance. And all of a sudden, um, you're unsure about yourself. When the identity trigger gets hit, the past looks damning and the future looks bleak. One of the easiest ways to tell that an identity trigger has been hit is you just feel stink about yourself. And there's a real absence of uh, perspective and there's a real absence of hope 
when an identity trigger gets hit. So one of the things that you'll, you'll hear coming out of your mouth when an identity trigger gets hit is you'll make really massively broad statements around how much you suck. So maybe in the context of a marriage, you know, a husband says something to a wife and she just goes, oh, well, I guess I'm just the worst wife in the world then. That's classic identity trigger, right? Because you've just, there's, there's no hope in that statement. There's no redemption. There's no like, hey, I can work my way out of it. It's just, I'm the worst person in the world. You know, or it might be like, I guess, you know, I just suck as a dad. Or, um, you know, maybe, maybe I should just quit my job. Like, it's just like, you just like massive, massive overreaches, all right? So, uh, just to uh, recap, truth triggers set off by the substance of the feedback. It's somehow off, unhelpful, or even straight up or wrong. So when a truth trigger gets hit, here's what you want to do. You want to, as much as you can, postpone judgment. Because what happens when a truth trigger gets hit is we try as hard as we can to negate the feedback. We try as hard as we can to go, okay, I need to work out how to justify that's not right. So someone might say, hey, I felt like you... Um, you know, maybe didn't handle that meeting that well, felt like maybe you weren't as open to the ideas of the people in the room as you could have been. First thing you do when a trigger gets hit is you go, I don't agree with that. No, and you're looking for, look, I, I, I asked that person what they thought. I asked that person what they thought. What are you talking about? I wasn't open to ideas. Of course I was. You just, you know, and so you want to postpone any kind of uh, immediate self-defense as much as you can, right? Postpone judgment. You want to prioritize understanding. So it's like, okay, you've just said, and I'm just, I'm just using an example, but you, you said, hey, you weren't open to ideas in the meeting. Help me understand, like, give me an example of what, that, what you mean by that. Like, help me understand, oh, right, okay, so when I said that, you felt that that was shutting the conversation out. Okay, great. So you want to prioritize understanding, and, um, and then I don't know what the end of the slide is. Before we can determine whether feedback is right or wrong, we first need to, any ideas? You want to add something in there? Because for some reason, the, my PowerPoint has cut the bottom off it. But anyway, those first two are great, just, <laughs> just, just so you know. Uh, oh, no, here we go. Before we can determine whether feedback is right or wrong, we first need to ask questions. There you go. It was just leading into the next slide. And you want to clarify what's being said. So when a truth trigger gets hit, don't defend yourself. Don't jump in with justifications. Don't be like, well, it's because of this, or I don't, you know what you're talking about. Just take a step back and ask questions. Clarify what's being said. Make sure you've got a complete understanding of what they're saying, why they're saying it, where they're coming from. Because again, most people haven't been trained in how to give you feedback well. Most people haven't sat down and really wrestled through, how am I going to articulate this and say this? They'll just be like, oh, I didn't think that was great. And so you, you, together, you kind of go on this journey of working out exactly why they feel the way that they feel, right? So ask questions, clarify what's being said. When it comes to relationship triggers, which are tripped by the particular person who's giving you the wonderful gift of feedback, we have this terrible habit of uh, what's called switch tracking. So switch tracking is, is uh, for, uh, a word that Liz and I stumbled across um, about 18 months ago, and this is massively common in our married life, probably just probably no one else does this, but switch tracking is when uh, one partner will give feedback to the other partner, and that just suddenly reminds that person of some feedback that they wanted to give but hadn't got around to giving, so now's a great time to be like, well, actually, now that we're talking about this, I've got a problem with you as well, right? And so, and, and so what happens now, you're having like 
two completely separate arguments at the same time. And then the first person's like, well, actually, now that you've said that, I just remember this third thing that was really peeing me off about you, and so let's just chuck that in there. And by the time you finish, you've got like 14 different issues all happening at the same time. You can't, you've got no hope in heck of ever resolving any of that stuff. And so switch tracking is, again, super easy to recognize because after about two minutes, you're like, we're not talking, we... What, what were we even, how many times have you been married, you're having an argument, and you're like, I can't even remember what started this, right? And now we're talking about the fact that I didn't want to get a dog, and you got a dog, like, our dog's eight years old, like how is this coming up in conversation now, right? It's, so switch tracking is, is really easy to identify, because you start off, and again, if you're doing a good job of clarifying what somebody's issue is, then switch tracking is even easier to recognize. Because like, look, we clarified the issue was you feel that I'm working too many hours. That's the issue. But now we're talking about the fact that you hate my eggs. Like, you know, these are not the same thing. Um, cooked eggs. <laughs> Just clarify. Um, so what you want to do, we're almost done, man. Just hang on five minutes, right? Don't switch track. That's, there's not any great technique to this, but just don't do it. And again, because it's so easy to recognize, it's a simple case of both of you being on the same page going, okay, we're not going to do this. We're going to try really hard not to do this. And so when Liz and I first started, it was just a simple case of going, you're switch tracking. That, that's, you're switch tracking, which was 99 times over 100 me, because the way that our relationship was working at the time was that Liz would... Uh, have an issue with me, but just not say anything. And then I'd have like a tiny wee thing, and I would say something, and then she'd be like, well, actually, I've got this mental list. Women are amazing, mental lists. Here's all these, I've been holding on to these things for so long, and I'm like, man, love does, keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> I cannot tell you the number of times I have quoted that Bible verse at my wife. Heads up, if your wife is furious at you, quoting scripture doesn't calm her down. Right? I like quote that scripture, and then she says something else, and then I've got to quote, like the Bible says, let no coarse language come out of your mouth. Right? And then it's pretty much, the Bible says, do not murder. Um, right? and, then, and then the last thing is like these identity triggers, right? And so they trigger something inside of us, causes our identity to come undone, our sense of who we are to become undone. And the way that you work with these is you want to cultivate a growth identity. And I think I might have even shared this uh, when I talked about this initially, but you know, uh, this idea that we are malleable and that we um, we evolve as people, that who you are now is not the person that you're going to be in five years' time, that you are completely capable of changing almost any component of your life. In fact, they've proven, just straight up proven, over and over again, that even what you would consider to be your personality can be adapted and changed and modified if you want it to be. And they did this big study where they got a whole bunch of kids together and they get, I don't know, they're like 19 years old and they gave them different puzzles to do. And what they found was that some of the kids, when they couldn't do the puzzles, would just dissolve into tears. And they would say things like, I can't do it, it's too hard, right? But then there were other kids 
that actually started, they could see them physically getting excited by the fact that these puzzles couldn't be done. They said there was one kid who was just licking his lips. He was just so excited about these puzzles, and he'd do it, and he'd fail, and he'd do it, and he'd fail. And, and what they recognized was that we, uh, we all have this fundamental mindset, which we, is we either believe that who we are is who we are, and we're stuck this way, and nothing will change us. I am who I am. Don't change me. Or we have a, what we call a growth mindset, which is, hey, I'm on a journey. I'm going to grow. And the growth mindset, right, that's far, that's far more biblical than this idea that you are just set in stone and that's who you are. If you have a mindset that you're set in stone, that you can't change, that you are who you are, and then someone gives you feedback that makes you feel really bad about yourself, what do you do with that? You can't do anything with it because you've decided that that's who I am. I'm stuck. They've said, hey, look, you're not a good communicator. Well, that's who I am. So I guess I'm stuck for the rest of my life to not be a good communicator. Whereas if you cultivate a growth identity, you can just go, okay, great. Maybe that's accurate feedback. Maybe I'm not a great communicator right now, but I can learn to be a great communicator. I can grow in that area, right? So truth triggers, you're going to postpone judgment. You're going to prioritize understanding. You're going to ask questions. You're going to clarify what's being said. Relationship triggers, you're going to make sure you don't switch track. Identity triggers, you're going to cultivate a growth identity. And that is three really helpful triggers to recognize and responses to receive feedback well.